From KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm John Schuck. Today we are going to tackle the topic of apologetics. Christian apologists seek to defend their beliefs. They are all over the internet with slick productions like this gentleman, Dr. Bobby Conway. If Christ is not alive, then we are a bunch of deceived people as Christians. My guest today is John Loftus. He's a former Christian apologist, now an atheist. He runs the website Debunking Christianity and is the author of about a dozen books, including Why I Became an Atheist, A Former Preacher Rejects Christianity. His latest book is called How to Defend the Christian Faith, Advice from an Atheist. Welcome, John, to Progressive Spirit. Well, thanks for uh, you know having me on. I appreciate that so much. The title of your book, uh, How to Defend the Christian Faith, Advice from an Atheist, is that uh, tongue-in-cheek? Is it satire? Or is it a real thing? <laughs> uh, all, all the above. All right. <laughs> there is some sincere, honest advice that I offer in it, and and yet it's some satire too. So, um, yeah, it depends on what part of the book in some ways. <laughs> so tell me a little bit uh, about your story. Uh, did, did you grow up going to church? I did up through the fourth grade. We were Catholics. <laughs> and then I think about that time we uh, just kind of lapsed as a family uh, I don't remember going that much um, to th- that that church. I'm certainly not doing much with it. I got confirmed, and I think that's uh, what they wanted most out of the, our early years. Um, but I had a dramatic conversion to Pentecostal Christianity at somewhere around about the age of 17 years old, and uh, you know, just you know, I just got lit on fire with passion for God and, you know, read my Bible. I think, um, you know, within a few months I read the whole Bible through and, uh, I, I loved it. I know that some atheists say, well, you know, uh, one way to make someone an atheist is have them read the Bible. Well, I, I read the Bible and I was loving it. <laughs> so uh-huh. It does depend on your mind frame and how you read it, I suppose, in that sense. And then I know I went off to, um, uh, study at uh, several colleges and became more and more educated in the ways of delusion. <laughs> educated in the ways of delusion. That right. means uh, now uh, that's uh, in, I mean, you're talking about Christianity. Did you go, uh, so did you go to like a Christian college? I did. I went to Great Lakes Christian College in Lansing, Michigan for four years. And I entered the ministry as an associate minister uh, and then after a couple of years or more of that, it was only supposed to be a summer ministry uh, anyway, but then it turned into uh, two and a half years there. And I decided I'd go to uh, get a master's degree. Some of my friends from Great Lakes Christian College were going there that year. And I thought I would just go as well. And we went to Lincoln Christian um, University. That's what it's called now in uh, the middle of a cornfield, <laughs> basically in Lincoln, uh. Illinois. And I stayed there for three years and got a ma- I got actually two master's degrees there. And I went on from there to Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. And I stayed with Wayne Lane Craig and graduated about three years later there since I was also working as a minister. 
it took me longer to get the um, Master of Theology degree, and it was a specialization in the uh, philosophy of religion. I took actually half of my classes there were uh, directly under William Lane Craig's uh, teaching and supervision. William Lane Craig, now he is the uh, a pretty popular apologist, right? He's always arguing for like the literal truth of the resurrection or something. He is, and he, you know, he's got some sophisticated arguments uh, as well. He's published in some philosophical philosophical journals and with some pretty impressive, um, you know, book publishing companies. And he's quite known uh, for being a debater. And um, you know, he d- learned how to debate in high school. And when he became a Christian, he started debating, um, you know. Using the talents that he had already developed, he became quite the debater. Yeah. So he's he's well known. So your Christian tradition, training, and ministry was really about uh, debating, in a sense, wasn't it? Uh, for like the truth of uh, Christianity. Do yeah, you? I was going to show him. <laughs> and that's really what an apologist is, isn't it? Right? Somebody who uh, uh, says that you know it's to defend. Um, uh, the, the Christian dogma or the Christian doctrine or, or whatever uh, the doctrine is. Yeah, I had the same basic education that Paul Copan has earned uh, in that, you know, we both have bachelor's degrees. We both have master's degrees. We both study with William Lane Craig and we both went to Marquette University, uh, both studying in a Ph.D. program, except for the fact that he finished his Ph.D. and I did not. Um, and, um, yeah, and so he's, he's the president of the Evangelical Philosophical Society, and I'm not. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, so we have the same, basic same training, and uh, I'm on one side, he's on the other, and, um, and it's not just him, of course. I know a host of these Christian apologists. as They're friends of mine. I studied along with them in some of our classes, and... Uh, um, I, I know the tricks of that trade very well, and I'm teaching people through my books what those tricks are and hoping that I can um, get them to realize that uh, you know, there's just nothing but special pleading when it comes to being an apologist. That's all, all Christian apologetics is special pleading. Yeah, well, I want to talk about that. So, and and personally for you, how did the unraveling uh, begin? So, so you're doing this, right? You're using the tricks of the trade. Are you conscious about using tricks of the trade as you're as no, you're doing it? No, no, that, that's the that's the thing about cognitive bias. You're simply looking for things that confirm your faith rather than things that disconfirm your faith. You're not really doing a good analysis of the evidence. Um, when you see, like, for instance, when when you pray, if you pray a hundred things during the week, one of them, maybe two of them, might turn out to be, um, you know, hits, as you will. Uh-huh. And that is, the, you know, there's a couple good answers to prayer, and the, the others you say, well, it wasn't God's will, or you forget about them, or you never actually prayed for any particular time. For your prayer to be answered anyway you'll say something like you know heal my mo- heal my mother god and and you'll never set a time frame for that so, so as she um wanes uh into the months and you're still praying for that and so you you really haven't set a time table for that so so you can just feel good and then when she does die if she does then you can say well it's you know it wasn't god's will but if she 
becomes healed on a particular time, or you know, or the doctors do something, of course, then you you can claim that as a hit. So confirmation bias is simply looking for the hits and ignoring the misses. And it, it, Christians do that with prayer, and they do that with the evidences, uh, the so-called evidences for the Christian faith and all. And so, um, you know, that's why I say all Christian apologetics is special pleading. You're special pleading your case based on the hits, the, the small hits that might take place, and ignoring all the contrary evidence. So when did the unraveling uh, begin for you? When did you uh, say, wait a second, this is this is really a sham. Well, it was the intersection of three things. First of all, I was um, long distance debating evolution with a cousin of mine who uh, taught in biochemistry, and uh, he just blew me away with that evidence. Uh, and um, one thing that that debate taught me was that you can trust science. And so I became what might be considered an, an, an old age um, creationist, you know, sort of, you know, at least these pushed me in that direction. And I tried to harmonize Genesis 1 with the evidence and I couldn't. And I finally realized that Genesis 1 was just a uh, pure myth. And so I asked myself, well, what else is myth in the Bible? Well, what about Samson's hair? You know, what about the axe head that floated? What about the uh, pillar of uh, fire at night? What about the shoes that never wore out for you know, so-called 40 years. What about other sorts of things? What else, what else is just myth? And uh, one by one, as like a domino effect, um, things began falling into place, if you will, <laughs> by falling down. And um, there wasn't really much to believe. And the last domino, of course, was the resurrection because, um, you know, specifically having studied with William Lane Craig, whose focus is on the evidence for the resurrection, it took me a longer time to think my way through that evidence. So, you know, I beca I went through different stages, uh, like from an evangelical to a moderate to a liberal uh, in a few short years. And then um, another few short years, I became an, uh, you know, a deist and then an agnostic. And then for another few short years, it took me, uh, I just realized that if there was a God who cared and wanted me to be saved, then he should have done something better than what I see, you know, in the world. He should have given more evidence than what I experienced, you know. So then I just said, uh, you know what, there just really isn't enough evidence to believe. I can't believe any, anything like that anymore. And so I became an atheist. So it was a long process, but that's what uh, started it. Progressive spirit, spirituality, social justice, ProgressiveSpirit.net. My guest is John Loftus. How to Defend the Christian Faith, Advice from an Atheist is his book. So have you ever uh, debated William Lane Craig? No, but I would like to. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he knows about you. <laughs> uh, he, he said that he doesn't want to debate me. Uh, he really thinks that I was saved at one time. He really thinks that God touched my heart. He really thinks I was a Christian believer. Why? Because he knows me, right? He knows me. So he also believes, because of the once saved, always saved uh, Calvinist doctrine, that uh, I'm coming back to the fold, because he can't deny the one half of that equation uh, by saying I never was saved in the first place. So since he thinks I was really saved, he's going to say, I'm coming back to the fold. And because he thinks, believes, in a delusional way, of course, that I'm coming back to the fold, that uh, debating me, embarrassing me, uh, you know, what have you, would uh, push me farther away. Uh, and I have a term for that. It's called bull****. <laughs>
<laughs> so you can edit that out if you want. But, um, you know, if I haven't committed the um, unpardonable sin, no one has. <laughs> that's that's all there is to that. The real reason, I think, is, is that, uh, I mean, I'm going to say it, I, I think he's scared of me. I don't think he's scared that he's he's going to lose the debate. He's he's really the master debater. Uh, uh, very few people can beat him at a debate, and I probably would not beat him either. Um, but he's scared of me because he's scared of my influence. He's scared to let people know that I was once his student, just like you know Aristotle was Plato's student, just like he was John Hicks' student, who came away uh, disagreeing with uh, the master, the teacher. And he's scared of my influence. He's scared of my books. He's scared to let people know that my books are out there. And I've accumulated uh, quite a, a, a big uh, a number of them that would uh, lead people astray, as he would think. Uh, you know, apologetics, it's kind of like uh, serving two masters. You want to say, hey, I'm, gonna, I'm out for the truth. But then on the other hand, uh, this truth has a ceiling, and that's Christian dogma. You can't really have both, can you? No, no, I, I think you're right. Uh, I actually have made the argument that uh, evangelical theology, in specific, which is what I focus on, is a uh, evangelical theology is a is a ruse. There is no such thing. There there is no such thing as evangelical scholarship um, because of that ceiling. And uh, so many firings have taken place within the evangelical communities and colleges and and churches because the pastors and the college professors are you know thinking beyond that glass ceiling but as soon as they do uh, they're fired or censored or um, forced to resign so that glass ceiling itself keeps and it would be the creeds it would be the creeds of the churches the right. creeds of the uh, colleges where they teach that keep them from being honest and uh, in their scholarship honest in their uh, theological musings uh, you know, and you talked about uh, William Lane Craig and worrying about if you're saved or, or whatever. I guess he isn't worrying. But there's a lot of psychological weirdness with this, too, right? I mean, just a lot of, you know, it isn't so much that your opinion's wrong. is that you're just, you're not right with the Lord, that you're just morally bad. If you have right. Of course, they're morally, you know, I know this sounds really uh, maybe uh, abrasive, but uh, William Lane Craig is morally uh, corrupt with regard to ISIS. Okay. ISIS would look at him and they would say, you are a moral bastard. You know, you are corrupt to the core. You know, you're not serving Allah. You're not doing, you're not performing Sharia law. So these morally corrupt kind of charges that are thrown from one religion to another it can only show the bankruptcy of the religion itself and the morals that um, they uh, uh, spout. I think a better way to find out our morals is through experience and empathy. Now, in the, in your book, let's talk about some of the advice that you give. Uh, you talk about ways that apologists uh, apply their trade, uh, special pleading, which you talked about already, uh, meaning, you know, our guy can walk on water, but the other guy can't, you know, <laughs> that kind of stuff. A punt to possibilities. What, what, what's that one? Well, I think that, you know, that's about all they've got. Uh, if you talk about the problem of evil, for instance, they will say, well, it's still possible there is a good, omnipotent, um, uh, you know, omniscient God, despite horrendous suffering, despite a little girl who's tortured to death and, and uh, what have you that uh, takes place here and there. Um, and so they say, well, it's still possible. It's still possible. Well, you know what? It just might still be possible. I mean, let's assign a probability to that of like, uh, 
oh, uh, you know, one to a million. You know, okay, it's still possible, but what we're looking for are probabilities, you see. And every, every positive evidence that they offer seems to be just a possibility. That's what I argue in the, uh, in the chapter. All, all they have, basically, are possibilities. It's possible, for instance, that in the past, God did a plethora of miracles, you know, as reported in the Bible, but that he stopped in today's world. You know, and that sometime in the future, it's possible that God might once again, uh, you know, bear his miracle working arm and start doing them again. Now, that's possible. See, let's assign a probability to it. Well, in my whole life and the lives of everybody I've, I've known, and I was even a Pentecostal, I've never seen a miracle, even as a Pentecostal. I mean, I thought I did, but I, I, I didn't uh, I didn't even believe then. I didn't see anything like that. So, so yeah, it's possible then that, therefore, Jesus was raised from the dead. Two, you know, there's a sign of probability to it. I mean, one in one million. I've never seen anybody rise from the dead. So all they have are possibilities. Now, okay, let's grant that. All this is possible. Uh, but what we're looking for is probabilities, and the probabilities are exceedingly uh, on the side of doubt. It's kind of like that Jim Carrey in that movie when the, the girl <laughs> says, yeah, your chance is one in a million. I still got a chance. I still got a chance. That's exactly right. I, I use that example in my book, Why I Became an Atheist. <laughs> I oh, love it. Okay. So uh, let's go with gerrymandering for God. Now, that is uh, what? Uh, finding a new definition for God? Uh, it's, it's defining away problems. Okay. You know, um, you know what gerrymandering is with regard to um, your districts. districts, your political districts, making them so they fit your vote. Yeah. So. Yeah, and and so um, yeah, what I find, I don't think I don't know if I wrote about this in a chapter. I was I wrote that a few months back. <laughs> but uh, you know they, what they do is they they ask you to define things. Well, um, you know we might say something like, uh, well, miracles are violation of of nature. And they would say, well, then, uh, well, then, you know, this, that, and the other. And, and they try to say, well, you don't even, you don't even got miracle right. Well, and they, they get you in a quagmire of that sort of thing that you lose focus. You know, they try to make you lose focus. Let me give you a, a current example of something I'm working on um, recently. Uh, Paul Moser is a, an expert in epistemology. And I started writing something on my Facebook page. He says, you know nothing about epistemology. Well, the fact is I do know something about epistemology, just not as much as he does. And uh, so he started hammering me home about, you don't know about this. You don't know about this. Have you read that book? Have you read that book? Do you understand this term? Do you understand that term? And um, I said, well, how does that relate to whether or not a virgin had a baby? <laughs> you know, how does that relate to an axe head floating? I mean, does, does epistemology really help us there? Because the only way we're going to know about those sorts of things would be to, to since they're historical questions, is with historical evidence. And um, that kind of gerrymandering, just trying to distract you from, from the case and, and uh, uh, gerrymandering the rules of the debate so that unless you know the rules and can argue in, in, their, um, in their way that... Um, Somehow you're not entitled to doubt. Yeah, it's kind of like saying, "Oh, well, you're just a uh, you're just too influenced by the Enlightenment or something." I remember hearing arguments from apologists like that, and I said, "Well, that's a bad thing." I mean, <laughs> yeah, I had somebody on my blog today say, "Well, you know what? We shouldn't trust reason." I said, "Well, aren't you reasoning with me?" I mean, it's it's a God. You know, he says God says that uh, the foolishness is is wisdom to to God, and uh, I don't understand that. I just, you know. Because everything we think of is 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 reasoning. Now, now you talk about experience, okay? We talk about experience. 
I just saw a car drove by. Yeah, I've, I've, I've seen that. But I haven't, I haven't had any feeling that I've known for sure that, say, Allah exists or, or Yahweh or anybody. And in fact, people have different feelings for their different gods. So that's not reliable at all as evidence. Yeah. Now, lying. Uh, do apologists consciously lie or is this an aspect of uh, brain uh, dissonance, cognitive Both. dissonance? Both. Some, some of them consciously lie. Uh, we know this when we just start by examining the Bible itself. In King Josiah's reign, uh, as I argue in that chapter, he and his uh, cohorts uh, made up stories, I think, about the Exodus and uh, the, the, the conquest in order to show that, uh, you know, that Josiah's God was on their side. Uh, you'd have to read that uh, to see that in greater depth. Uh, then we have Noah's flood um, evidence that's all been shown to be a fraud. We have also um, uh, people who write books like I've been to hell and lived to tell about it or I've been to heaven and lived to tell about it. And I mean, these are all shams. These are all lies. And they do that. And when even when exposed, they apologize. But they say what so many people became Christians as a result of it, that, that it's worth it. So, or, rap, yeah. or the rapture uh, is coming in, f in a few years, and uh, if the rapture doesn't come, and it won't, it's, they've always been wrong, that didn't it uh, at least bring people into the fold? <laughs> so there's kind of a justifying your lie because you're doing it for Jesus. And actually, actually, I understand that. I mean, if people were actually going to uh, go to hell, uh, wouldn't it be like, oh, uh, trying to rescue somebody from a kidnapper? Um, wouldn't you say to the kidnapper anything to, you know, get the person to release, the, you know, the victim? Uh, I, so I actually do understand that. If, if actually there is an actual hell, then I would understand lying for Jesus. And um, there's, there can be a justification of, of that. But once you point out the lie and you realize that all they've got is possibilities and that all they're doing is special pleading by gerrymandering the districts, then the lying aspect becomes culpable. You know, it becomes it becomes an additional nail in the coffin for what apologists do. Okay, I, we just have a couple of minutes left. My guest is John Loftus. How to defend the Christian faith advice from an atheist. I wonder, you know, in, in terms of this, does argument work. Uh, in, in a sense, I think that um, belief is almost like an addiction. I mean, we are uh, caught into it, and there's just so much uh, uh, emotion and uh, worth tied up into yes. our, our, our delusions that it's uh, pretty tough to break away. I think of Bart Ehrman, uh, you know, it took him a long time. Yes. Uh, and I don't know if it's argument enough, or maybe it's a combination of argument and, and uh, whatever it is that kind of frees us from delusion. Well, uh, both. Yeah. Um, I, I think that we have to acknowledge that you can't reason people out of something they were never reasoned into in the first place. Hmm. Now, that's something that uh, cultural anthropology professor uh, David Eller uh, make, makes mention of. And there is a truth to that. We, you know, how can you reason somebody out of something they were never reasoned into in the first place? I mean, they were emotive uh, experiences, dramatic conversions. They were taught that way and warned of hell in their early upbringing. And that warning from hell can right. uh, sit in your mind so that 10 years, 20, 30 years later, when you 
decide to question what you were raised to believe that that deep in your mind is the the, the images of hell that forbid, forbid you from doubting. Uh, so how can you get them out? Well, there are some people who are just there, ripe and willing, just like a salesman might have to knock on like ten or twenty doors to get a to get a you know a hit or. Uh, even a hundred, depends on what they're selling. Uh, people do respond to reasoning. Um, uh, in my case, I I responded through a series of personal crises that uh, um, affected me at the time. I was doubting, and uh, you know, because you know, part of my problem was, well, why would God allow this to happen to me? Um, and uh, some others might feel the same. So. Uh, some people are ripe for it because of an ex bad experience in their lives, and of course, then the Christians would say, "Well, therefore, they're uh, they're justifying their bad experience." But I say it sometimes the delusion is so strong it takes a bad experience for people to actually be honest with their faith, and others uh, just have the brains for it. Others just have the mentality that they are going to seek the truth no matter what the cost. And you don't know who they are in advance. Hmm. So you spread your seed like the sower in the parable of Jesus' day. Um, and, you know, some people, uh, you know, it's going to take root in some ground, whereas it won't take root in most of the ground. So uh, there are plenty of testimonies of people who have been reasoned out of their faith. And that would justify then your book, How to Defend the Christian Faith, Advice from an Atheist, that uh, <laughs> you, 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 you might actually uh, convince a few folks, do you think? Oh, I, I'm pretty sure I, I, that, that's, that's the case. I mean, I threw everything out on the table there and even in the kitchen sink. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, in your final section, too, you talk about uh, uh, the old theodicy bugaboo, how to defend God in a world of pain. I mean, that that, that hits for many people because there's really not much of a defense. Um no. And, uh, and, and that no, all they have is really... possibilities. Yeah. And, and one of my reoccurring lines that I have throughout the second and the third part of that book is I highlight what Christians do, Christian apologists do, and I say something like, now, if you want to be a Christian apologist, you should do likewise. Uh, if you want to be a good Christian apologist, you should not be one at all. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to have to end with that. Uh, my guest, John Loftus, How to Defend the Christian Faith Advice from an Atheist. Uh, John's been my guest. Thank you, John, for the book, uh, for all your work, and for being with me today. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Progressive Spirit. I'm John Shuck. The website is progressivespirit.net. Catch Progressive Spirit on your favorite podcast app. Progressive Spirit is free to radio stations and available on the Pacifica Radio Network. Progressive Spirit is produced at KBOO Portland. Be well.